Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Adam Butler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Resolve Asset Management, a systematic investment management firm focused on risk-aware, diversified global asset allocation strategies. Our conversation with Adam is broken into two parts. First, we talk about the life cycle of investment factors. From their beginnings in the academic world to their widespread use and proliferation, factors may have a useful life, and over time there may be decay in the excess return offered by popular factors like value. Second, we talk about risk parity strategies, which is something Adam is quite familiar with given Resolve runs the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Mutual Fund and acts as the index provider on a new ETF that utilizes momentum and trend following to allocate among asset classes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Resolve's Adam Butler. Adam, thank you for joining us today. Gentlemen, it's a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I think last time we uh, got together, it was in middle Pennsylvania, March for the Fallen, suffering, working hard. Yeah, I really missed that this year, you know, and you've always set the pace, um, which is which is pretty awesome and, and inspirational, but it's just nice to get everybody together and, and um, have those organic conversations and, and those check-ins. And, uh, you know, we did something on island here this year but it wasn't it wasn't at all the same so you know i hope we can get together next year and do it properly yeah no i agree with that i mean you guys always i just remember the first the first year we met you guys had the whole crew you loaded up the van there was like 10 of you guys resolve was like representing big time so um that was a great great group of you know people you brought down yeah i think we had eight or nine of of our uh team down which we were really proud of and and one of the uh, biz dev guys suggested we get t-shirts. So we got, we got these athletic t-shirts with the logo on it and, and, uh, we're a bit of a team about it. So that, that was a bit of fun. Yeah. Good team building experience for sure. Um, okay. So we wanted to, uh, really cover two topics with you today. One is, uh, sort of talking through and building off, um, a recent podcast episode you did about the life cycle of factors and when factors get, um, uh, you know, known about and adopted and widespread adoption, how that can affect the premium um, that factors exhibit. Um, and then the second, I guess, part of the podcast, we'll talk about risk parity, which is a, you know, a subject that a lot of maybe retail investors might not really know too much about. And so I think that'll be a good discussion around explaining what risk parity is and some of the research that you're, you know, that you guys have done um, on that type of investment strategy. But um, to start, I wanted to talk about um, the process that factors go through in their life cycle. And so, you know, just to introduce sort of the concept about, I thought what you could do is introduce the concept, how factors are created and how they become used and then potentially overused and how that can affect the premium that they exhibit. So if you might just want to kind of walk us through from when a factor gets discovered to where a factor maybe like value is today. I think that would be helpful. 
Sure. I mean, the this is, by the way, just a working hypothesis. We haven't really developed a, uh, any sort of comprehensive thesis. We have done some work on just some really simple questions that, that we pose. Um, you know, if it was different this time, how would we tell? You know, um, if we if we do expect that the population mean of a diversified basket of of um, a, of well adopted and espoused factors have, if if the population mean excess return is greater than zero, what would we have to see in order to disprove that? Um, so we we've done some analysis in those veins. Um, and there's obviously been some literature that um, analyzes the performance of different factor premia, um, either pre-discovery and then between the point when it is discovered and the the in initial analysis is done on it, and then when the paper is published, and then after the paper is published, um, and just sort of see what the decay is for a lot of these factors. Um, but our the, the general thesis is that um, factors go through a life cycle like any technology. And so you've got some early innovators that are perhaps doing the research. They've done the research. Maybe some of them have been espousing this type of approach for a while. Eventually, an academic or a practitioner comes along and publishes uh, on this phenomenon. So think Fama and French publishing on uh, small and value in 1992 and and um, all of the sub subsequent publications after that and some prior to that Hogan publishing on the low volatility anomaly and Falkenstein that sort of thing um, but eventually somebody somebody publishes on it and uh, if the publication is authored by uh, people with sufficient credibility so either academic credentials or or peer um, uh, status, then that's a recognized uh, effect, and so it gets you know it gets published in a, in a relevant journal, and then the process of adoption begins, right? So you've got people who were not familiar with it, um, who are scouring the literature, looking for ways that they can generate excess returns in portfolios that are diversified away from their common market exposure, and. So you get some sort of early flows from the, the people that read the paper and are willing to adopt this new technology with very little proof, right? Because you don't have any live results that you can cite yet. It's just a concept that's with, with a paper attached and maybe a back test with a relevant T statistic. And so it, it, if you think about any normal technology, you get this these early adopters, which are risk takers, and then once a sufficient number of people have adopted it, and um, so for peer reference, and once there's a documented uh, history of running these strategies in, in live production or live portfolios, eventually a, a larger majority of people adopt this concept, deploy capital. And as more and more capital is deployed, eventually the amount of capital that is deployed to arbitrage this effect overwhelms the effect. And so it inverts the sign of the uh, expected excess returns. So now you've got an expected deficit of returns and that will last until this late majority who were late to buy into this and probably didn't have high conviction in the concept in the first place 
eventually get fed up with these negative excess returns and slowly abandon uh, the concept. So they withdraw arbitrage capital from this um, area of the market. And eventually you reach this point of equilibrium where you've got just enough investors who with, with really hardcore conviction to um, continue to stick with this concept um, to generate a small premium. And that premium probably equilibrates or calibrates somewhere around the average premium that you get from more well-known effects like uh, the equity risk premium or the duration premium, this type of thing. Um, so, so that's the general thesis. And, and then there's some sort of fundamental underpinnings for it. I'm wondering if you, it got, kind of got me thinking, I wonder if with technology in the past 20 years, if that has accelerated um, the decay of these factor premiums. So if you think about, you know, like what DFA is doing by being able to screen, and Validia does this too. I mean, a lot of firms or hundreds of them that are screening or filtering on these factors, but that technology, well, it probably did exist, you know, pre 2000, but it wasn't being used, you know, across product with hundreds of billions of dollars in it. So I wonder if the technology aspect has sort of sped up or made this more uh, pronounced in your mind. It's a good insight. Um, I mean, I'm sure that the proliferation of different technologies and communication has created different inefficiencies that someone will come along and publish on. But I mean, if you think about sort of the pre-internet era, people learned about, practitioners learned about these these new factors in journals. The journals are typically published quarterly. Um, so they get them quarterly on a three-month delay. It takes a little while. You know, they're, they're not communicating, practitioners are not communicating with one another at the same rate or frequency because there were much greater frictions. And so I'm sure definitely you've got the rate of information diffusion on these new potential alpha sources or edges or factors or whatever you want to call them um, has accelerated and probably will continue to accelerate. And now, of course, with machine learning, that whole, the whole, um, uh, the, the circuit breaker of having a, a paper published and a practitioner reading it and, need, and and often needing to run the concept by a committee, et cetera, et cetera. Now machines can do a lot of the searching and vetting and by virtue of being able to ensemble a large number of these effects, you reduce the potential of making a large commitment to an effect that either never existed and is just really a, a result of, of data mining, like a statistical error, um, or coming into it too late so that the effect has been washed away by the uh, amount of arbitrage capital that's already been deployed to it. So I, I definitely think that markets adapt and they're probably adapting more quickly, I think, to your point. One of the things that uh, interested me, uh, that kind of struck me about your discussion you guys were having on your podcast was this idea that the factors that are the most compelling, the factors that have the most evidence, the factors that people that make sense to people, those are in, in many ways the most vulnerable to this whole process. And you had a, you had something on Twitter that was it was very interesting. You said, "What if the very qualities that make factor investing so compelling are ultimately responsible for driving smart beta premia to extinction?" I was wondering if you could talk about that idea and the idea that certain factors that are more popular may actually perform worse in this type of framework. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people that embrace empirical finance, they, they and I've fallen victim to this in the past as well. Um, but they tend to sort of think that these effects exist in a, in a vacuum, right? They don't sort of think about the underlying, um, money dynamics that, that create these in the first place. So if you just so go back to why do these opportunities to generate excess returns exist? Well, they exist because either because of risk aversion or preference, a certain class of investors has decided that they, they want to under own and under price. There's a lack of demand for securities with a certain set of characteristics, right? Um, you know, maybe people prefer not to own companies that have had where, where the last one, two or three year uh, growth has been negative, you know, um, and, and that may manifest as these companies with this negative earnings growth historically uh, are priced at a lower premium. They're cheaper. Um, and in fact, they extrapolate out this decline in earnings forever when in reality, the effect is more likely to mean revert. And, and so what happens is uh, people are expecting the uh, returns or sorry, the, the earnings to continue to decline. They actually begin to recover. And so it turns out that you were underpricing the security relative to the potential earnings accretion in the future. Well, if a sufficient number of people decide that they want to make that error or express that preference, um, or want to avoid that risk, then it will create this group of securities that are underpriced. And if they're underpriced, it means another group of investors can come in and deploy capital to those securities and expect to earn a premium, right? So that's, that is how all of these premium need to um, come into existence. There needs to be a group of people that decides they, they want to underown them so that another group of people can, can come in and, and um, recalibrate that and earn an excess return. So if you sort of think about a, a few different steps in this process, so there exists a group of investors who don't want to own securities with certain characteristics. A paper is published that suggests that investors who want to deploy arbitrage capital against securities with those characteristics have historically earned returns. Let's imagine that there was a billion dollars of unpriced securities just to simplify the process. And then a paper is published and then a billion dollars of arbitrage capital is deployed into securities with these characteristics. Then what should we expect to happen to this premium? Pro probably it should go back to zero, right? Well, what if $2 billion is deployed into these securities? Well, now, now you've got more capital that is looking to own securities that were previously under-owned. So now these securities are now over-owned. Therefore, you should expect a negative premium. So the sign of the excess return has inverted, right? Now, the question becomes, what type of premia are more likely to attract arbitrage capital? Well, they're the type of premia that are in journals that are uh, considered to be highly credible, written by authors with high status, that um, others in your peer group have also allocated to where the original effect had very high statistical and economic significance. So to the extent that you're chasing into a class of securities or a factor strategy where those things are true, probably there's a large number of others also chasing their dollars into the strategy. And there's a higher likelihood that those dollars will overwhelm the original effect and invert the sign. 
Um, so, so, so that's really what I meant by, you know, if, if the popularity of a strategy sows the seeds of, or may sow the seeds of, of that strategy's eventually inver eventual inversion. This concept of being overowned and underowned got me thinking about this podcast uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy did a long time ago. It was when it was the uh, anonymous Twitter user modest proposal, and it was the first time he was on. And he was talking about this idea that in the late, coming out of the late '90s and the early 2000s period, value investors were really rewarded for staying the course. You know, they they stayed the course through that. They got great returns in that period. And he was thinking maybe they've learned this time that that's what they need to do. And so in many ways that would be bad for the value premium. We almost need that capitulation. You need that capital to come back out for it to work again. I mean, do you think that's a, is that a fair way to look at it? I, I think so. The, the challenge of course is <laughs> how do you define the value premium, right? So you've got, you, you, who knows what sort of capital is deployed towards securities with high, high book to market versus high earnings to price versus high, um, EBITDA to enterprise value or, or, you know, like you just, you have no idea what, how people are defining these, these factors in the first place, but to the extent that there's some common underlying features in those securities, some sort of meta factor that, that you can sort of triangulate by, by zeroing in on securities with high book to market, uh, low PEs, et cetera, then yeah, for sure. You, you would want to see some meaningful amount of capitulation from investors who had chased into that premium in order to um, expect that premium to revert to its normal or recalibrated or equilibrium value, right? And I don't know, I mean, we've, I think you've probably seen the flows. I've seen some charts, actually, uh, Jake Ganompik posted a couple yesterday that showed the some of the flows um, from Morningstar. Uh, into and out of different categories of both mutual active mutual funds and, and index ETFs. And it, it did seem like there had been a rather steady decline in active value investors, but there'd also been a steady decline in active growth investors. And you had seen a, a, a pickup of some of that slack into indexed value investors. So you know, it's, it is hard to, to be able to know. And then of course, you don't know how much is allocated to value type strategies in institutions and private portfolios that aren't, that can't be tracked by mutual fund uh, flows. Right. Um, I mean, the, the thing about value in particular, and I don't mean to pick on value. Um, I mean, the, this general concept applies to, you know, virtually any public uh, published factor phenomenon. But the thing about value that always struck me is that the discipline value methodology is, is generally consistent with many of the techniques that are practiced in any sort of typical MBA class, right? You're looking to, 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 to buy companies with that are trading at a low price relative to the expected value of future cash flows. And so it just all kind of dovetails. It just the irony about value is it seems like it should be contrarian. And yet, if you ask anyone on the street, if they if they want to buy a strategy that buys dollars for nickels, most of them will say yes. So it's not really that contrarian, you know? It, so, you know, you are buying unloved companies, but but you're, the, the methodology you're using is easily espoused by investors, I think.
Yeah, it's probably for your average investor, it's the most understandable factor. It applies to, you know, the way they would value a business that they saw, you know, a private business outside of the market, you know, whereas they wouldn't be using momentum to value the business down the street. You're right. Yeah. I mean, momentum, ironically, is the, the least intuitive strategy. You know, if you were to ask for someone on the street, should you buy, should you buy companies that are all at all time highs or buy companies that are at all time lows? They're going to say, I should, well, you should buy the companies at all time lows because they're cheap, right? So it's, it is ironic. Everyone who practices value thinks they're a contrarian and momentum is pro-cyclical. And I guess from an academic definition, that's true, but from an intuition, it's the reverse. I want to ask you how an individual investor, you know, a lot of our listeners are individual investors and how they sort of look at this argument of is value dead? You know, on, on one hand, you have a long period of data saying there is a value premium. On the other hand, you have a lot of good arguments right now, including some that you've made, that that value premium has either been reduced or doesn't exist anymore. And then in the middle, you have what Corey Hofstein wrote in his Factor Fimbo Winter piece, which is statistically speaking, we can't provide the answer. And by the time the answer becomes apparent, we're, none of us are going to be investing anymore. And so I'm wondering how, what would be the framework do you think an individual investor could look at this problem? Yeah. So, so two things occur to me immediately. The first thing with um, Factor Fimbo Winter, which by the way, I quote all the time and it's one of my favorite pieces. Um, is that Corey assumes flat or like just random noise returns um, going forward, right? He doesn't account for an inversion of the effect. And, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. We've run a, a, a variety of studies over the last week or two, um, just trying to sort of explore how we might think about um, proving or disproving this general thesis. And, and I mean, it's pretty shocking. If you look at a, a, I mean, pick a basket of any four or five factor or multi-factor or style premia ETFs or funds uh, since 2018, the, the, the steady negative return or negative alpha from those products is astonishing. In fact, if you run a, just a simple simulation that says, what might I expect from a, um, a strategy that has a pod, like, let's just assume there's a positive population mean it's above zero. And I'm just going to simulate a cone of possibilities for what the alpha generation process of these strategies might look like over the 2018 to whatever, um, October, 2020 period is. You cannot, you can't simulate a process that looks as bad as the alpha generating process for that um, basket of, of factor sources. So, you know, even I just ran one yesterday, a hundred thousand simulations, and I posted the worst of the hundred thousand simulations and the trajectory of the um, factor basket, the alpha of the factor basket was well below the worst um, simulated path. So. You know, I think you can sort of say with, if they were random, it would take a really long time to disprove them. But if they were sufficiently inverted, you actually could disprove them much more quickly. And the last, the, the period since 2018 provides a substantial, significant uh, statistical argument uh, in favor of the verdict that there's something different going on here with, with factor investing. I will also say with regards to value in particular, that if you have been a value investor for, for a long time, 
um, or are considering factor investing and value at the moment, um, I think we would all agree that for a, for a trade, if you wanted to put a value trade on here, it's about as good a time from a value, a relative valuation standpoint ver, ver, across almost all metrics um, as we've seen since the late 1990s for, for value. So, you know, the thing about value, even if you look at it historically, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not, I'm not actually a value expert. I'm sort of speaking more generally, but my understanding or, of the character of, the, of value in general is that it does have this um, really rapid mean reversion um, character to it. Like it, it's, it, it's dead or delivers a negative premium for a very long time. And then it delivers this massive catch up over a, a one or two year period. And then if you miss that, that short catch up, then all you experience is the pain and you never get to experience the premium. So it's a, um, it, you know, for individual investors, it's a, it's a tricky setup, but I would argue notwithstanding value that it's just very, very tricky anyways to identify edges in advance that are likely to be persistent in live trading. I mean, if we've, we've all seen the factor zoo, we've seen the studies from research affiliates and Vanguard that show the pre-live um, trajectory of all these factor indices or smart, let's call them smart beta indices, um, and then what they look like on average when they go live. And you've got this lovely um, climb from, from uh, bottom left to upper right prior to launch, and then they flatline after launch. And um, you know, this is across hundreds of different uh, indices that have been created over the years. Um, so just, in, and it's not to say that none of them are effective. It's just, it's a very interesting problem. It's a hard problem to determine which ones of those many published effects will actually generalize to data that the effect has not seen before. Um, and it's something that we felt, we thought very deeply about and have had to shift our are thinking on pretty profoundly over the last year or so. Yeah, one of the things, you know, going back to your your whole answer with value, I was thinking when you were saying that is, you know, one of the things all of us that are factor investors always say to investors is, well, don't just use value, use all these other factors. But in, in listening to your answer, I mean, at least in terms of the major factors, I mean, it doesn't sound like you're that optimistic that even a multi-factor approach, at least with the major widely recognized factors, may work either going forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pick on any uh, specific provider. I don't really need to, you know, whether you're looking at, at iShares or MSCI or Goldman Sachs or AQR or whatever, just look at all their multi-factor uh, funds and then regress them on S&P or, or U.S. total stock market since 2018. And the, the verdict is conclusive. I mean, it's just been a... Um, it's been catastrophic. Yeah, I know it's been terrible. <laughs> so, you know, we may see some mean reversion, but but the reality is that what we are seeing or have seen since 2018 is statistically inconceivable uh, if the population mean of the strategies in the current environment is positive. What do you think an individual investor? So obviously an individual investor wants to find some way to deploy their capital. And I don't think you're a, you're a huge proponent of market cap weighting um, from listening to you. So I'm wondering what do you think the options are? I mean, obviously we have these major factors, all of them as they've become known, have, their premiums have been reduced. What do you think the options are in terms of how you would think about building a portfolio in a world like that? Well, we wrote a paper on portfolio. We've written a couple of papers on, on uh, portfolio optimization for stocks. And the starting point was what 
are our expectations about returns relative to risk, right? So if you think about CAPM, CAPM says the expected return on a stock is a function of the stock's beta to the market. And you can go all the way back to table one of Fama French 1992, cross-section stock returns, and you will see that in fact, after you control for size, there is absolutely no relationship between uh, the beta of a stock and expected returns. So if there's no relationship between beta and expected returns, then the CAPM is completely invalid, right? The, the, the cap weighted index is, is completely invalid. What you see in fact is if anything, a, an inversion of that, that stocks with higher beta and or higher vol and or higher residual volatility actually have lower expected comp, uh, lower average returns, but even more pronounced lower compound returns because of the volatility drag. Um, as you go from decile to decile up the beta or volatility or risk, uh, spectrum. So if anything, that, that relationship is inverted, but inversion seems extreme to me. I don't know why anybody would, why we would reward stocks with greater, um, with lower risk, with higher returns. So what I said, let's take a more neutral approach. And in fact, you can't reject the null hypothesis that the relationship between risk and forward returns in stocks is just zero. There is no relationship that all stocks essentially have the same expected return, regardless of volatility or beta or, um, um, residual beta or residual uh, vol or whatever. So in the event that all stocks have the same expected return, regardless of risk, the mean variance optimal portfolio is the minimum variance portfolio. And the minimum variance portfolio has a couple of really interesting characteristics that distinguish it from a low vol portfolio. But the primary one is that it seeks to reduce portfolio volatility through diversification. So where a low vol portfolio typically is composed almost exclusively of utilities and telcos and, and banks um, because they have very low uh, volatility, the um, minimum variance portfolio spans all of the relevant economic sectors of the economy because it's just trying to diversify its exposure to different types of risk in the market. Um, the other interesting thing about the minimum variance portfolio is that uh, it is, it is uh, the optimal portfolio from a stochastic portfolio theory. It, it generates the highest excess, excess growth rate from the rebalancing premium, which I've actually just spent um, the last few weeks exploring and writing a paper on. But the rebalancing premium is the excess return that you get on a portfolio. So that's in excess of the weighted average compound returns of the portfolio constituents. So let's assume that you've got a portfolio of 100 stocks and you've, you've got to wait for all of those stocks and the weighted average, so weight, the average of the weight times the compound return for all of those different stocks is 5%, okay, over a, over a certain period. Let's, let's say a one-year period. Well, if you rebalance that portfolio back to its, those, those constituent weights over that period, then maybe the return on the actual rebalanced portfolio was 6%. And so you're able to generate 1% of excess returns simply from the process of rebalancing back to those target weights over that year. And so if you can gen, and that's a risk-free return, you're not, you're not taking on any excess risk to generate that premium. 
And so what's interesting about the minimum variance portfolio is it maximizes the rebalancing premium to a, uh, to a portfolio of stocks. Whereas for risk parity across global asset classes, uh, maximizes the rebalancing premium for a, uh, a portfolio of global asset classes. And we can, and we can uh, dis discuss why that is, but you know, if, if you can get the, if I would advocate for a global minimum variance portfolio to be your core equity holding, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. Pick one, the MSCI one, the Vanguard one, I'm sure there's more that I've missed, but a global minimum variance portfolio, um, because it maximizes the expected return per unit of volatility. And it also gives you the maximum expected excess growth rate from rebalancing premium. Uh, just a follow-up on the rebalancing premium. I, we had a couple of questions on that. And thank you, by the way, for sharing that paper with us, because I know it's it's coming out. Do you think that because I'm do you think that that su somehow supports the value premium though? Because you're effectively buying with the rebalancing, you're you're buying assets that have fallen in price. So I'm wondering how that sort of correlates with buying value. So, cause I think what you're saying is that when you rebalance more frequently, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're, you're essentially buying the things that have gone down more and reweighting. And so you're, and if there's a rebalancing premium in that, I, I, I don't know, it's just an interesting question. If the rebalancing premium somehow can correlate or be tied to the value premium. Yeah, I mean, I would take it maybe one level further and say that it maybe argues in favor of a uh, portfolio that contains both value exposure and momentum exposure because you've got two, you know, if they're long only, then they're, they're still pretty highly correlated. But let's imagine you've got a, a concentrated value uh, fund and a concentrated momentum fund. Well, that is one way to create diversification in the portfolio and rebalancing between those should generate some small rebalancing premium as a function of stuff like their relative volatilities, the uh, correlation between them. Um, and there's other dynamics at play like the cross auto covariance. So to what extent do they mean revert to relative to one another and at what rate, right? Because if you're rebalancing at a at a frequency at the wrong frequency, um, then you're maybe capturing trending behavior and not mean reverting behavior, and, and that would be deleterious to the premium. But I think it th that is a that may be a less optimal way to harvest this premium than than explicitly going out and buying a minimum variance portfolio where you've got a variety of asset classes that are by definition of construction of the portfolio highly uncorrelated with one another. And the more assets that you have that are uncorrelated to one another and that where you're rebalancing, the higher the premium. That's balanced off a little bit about with the fact that the minimum variance portfolio does tend to skew towards lower beta assets as well. Um, but in general, I think that's a better way to harvest the premium than some of the alternatives. I know that that's a fair point. Um, just one last sort of final question on the factor stuff. Um, and I wanted to ask you in relation to like manager selection. So on the one hand, you know, I think one of the most important characteristics of an investment manager is that they have the, the ability and the discipline to sort of stick with the strategies that they're following. But then there's this possibility that obviously these factors can decay over time. Um, and that a manager needs to be constantly evolving 
sort of their investment process. So I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on the balance between those two things? Um, as you know, a manager yourself, as someone that gets allocated to, um, you know, when you're in these due diligence meetings and being vetted for your investment strategies, you know, how do you sort of articulate and explain this discipline that you need, but also the fact that the process, you know, probably has to evolve to be successful? It, yeah, I guess it depends on if you're allocating to uh, indices or to active managers. I think it is the stated objective of an index to follow a specific process. So if you're buying an index and you veer, the index veers from its stated objectives, then that's a violation of policy. Um, but from an active manager standpoint, I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question because Morningstar created this concept of style boxes and, and it, and then institutions followed suit where it became a, a real no, no to, uh, to change your style box, to have this style drift. And, you know, I think the role truly of active managers is to, is to be adaptive, is to be able to go where the P and L is. Um, so, I mean, if, if you just want to allocate to a group of um, alpha sources or edges or, you know, essentially mechanical index products in, in search of a long-term average premium, then, you know, that is a, that's a perfectly valid way to think about it. Um, for an active manager, I think they're paid higher fees because they should be looking for alternative ways to make money if they're if their previous methodology is is ineffective it's a hard it's a hard question for active managers themselves when should they shift focus versus when should they just stick with the program um and i think it really comes down to the view and the um just the the framework in which the active manager uh, operates but for those who are selecting indices even this is a major problem because we don't know i mean there's there's a fundamental challenge with the empirical finance literature. And that is that all of the results publish data over the entire horizon. So we don't know, you know, if you think about an academic, they're trying to demonstrate that a certain quality of, of security um, leads to a positive or negative premium. But if you think about the, the, the um, problem of the investor, it is how do I sort through all of these potential opportunities and select a group of them that are most likely to outperform out of sample. And the academic literature doesn't provide investors with any guidance that they can use to make those selections. Because what they need to know is if I select these um, indices or these factors or these uh, strategies on the basis of the criteria that the academics use to demonstrate efficacy, does that mean that, that all the ones that I select are going to be most likely to outperform out of sample. And there are no papers on that that answer that question. You know, if, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a manager that is trying to figure out, or like an investor that's trying to figure out what to buy, I need to get a list of, or, or time series, hopefully high, higher frequency time series on a wide variety of different potential strategies that I might allocate to. And then I got to go back five years and I got to say, okay, I'm going to use some criteria to select strategies that I'm going to put in my portfolio. And then I've got to evaluate whether that criteria led to outperformance out of sample. 
Okay, there are other ways to do this that are more sophisticated, but at a very fundamental level, every investor should, I think, try this, try this question. And we we wrote about this a little bit in in one of our our pieces on ensembles that happen to do with trend, but it applies to anything. But the question is, you know, should I just choose one trend strategy because it has the best performance over the longest time horizon? So imagine a paper is published. They publish performance from from 1970 to 2011. They say the 12 month trend uh, strategy is optimal. And so then somebody looks at that and says, okay, well, then I'm just going to allocate to the 12-month trend strategy. Well, you can allocate to all these different types of trend strategies. Is the 12-month optimum? Well, okay, but it was optimum in the 1970-2011 sample. So then you can run some tests. How did it perform from 2011 or from 2012 to present? Do you have data that goes back prior to 1970? How did it, how did it perform then? And then if I use data, let's say I've, I, I take 40 years of data and I use those 40 years to choose the, the uh, trend specification that had the best performance, let's say the highest CAGR over that 40 years, and then I roll it forward five years, Does did it select the, the, the best performing one out of sample? What if I do this every year? I just choose the one that, that has the highest performance over all of the historical period before that. Does the, do I then go on to choose ones with better performance? And the answer is no, you don't. So you're better off to just choose all of these different trend specifications and ensemble them together. And I think it's sort of the same thing with factor strategies in general, but it's a harder problem because you don't know which ones to select. At least somebody who's saying, I want to own trend says, I believe in trend. So how do I get the best allocation, the most robust uh, allocation for added sample performance if I believe in trend, this ensemble method? But then how do I select among all these different types of factor strategies that outperform at different horizons? And how do I select them in advance? And how do I put them in a portfolio? Um, so this is, a, this is a very hard problem. I do believe that, that data science offers some very interesting uh, solutions to this, but they're not presently covered in any of the empirical finance literature. This is probably the biggest lesson I've learned from following you and following Corey as well, which is why do one thing when I could do a lot of things? If I have a lot, if I have things that work, why am I just doing one? You know, you've seen all these funds, these end of month rebalance on the 200 day moving average, all in or all out funds. I mean, we've seen funds like be, their performance track records be completely destroyed by that one decision when it goes the wrong way. So, I, I mean, I think you're you're 100 right about that. Um, for the last part of this, we wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit about risk parity because I don't think there's any concept in investing that is probably maybe less understood, but also gets less attention relative to how well it works than risk parity. And so before we get into it a little more in detail, I wanted you to just maybe a lot of our uh, listeners may not be totally familiar with risk parity. So could you just explain what the concept is and some of the benefits of following that type of strategy? Yeah. Thank, thank you for asking. Um, so... The idea here is if I wanted to build a portfolio that I wasn't really going to touch for 30, 40, 100 years, what would that portfolio look like and what sort of framework would I use to guide the decisions of what I put in it? So the idea is, well, typically what drives the differences in performance from year to year and decade to decade in markets is whether markets surprise to the upside or downside in terms of inflation and whether the, um, the economy surprises to the upside or downside in terms of growth. And so what you want is to construct a portfolio that has uh, investments that are fundamentally designed to do well in all of the different combinations of inflation and growth surprises. 
So you can imagine um, the type of, of assets that perform well in an inflationary growth environment. You need to look back no further than sort of the 2000 to 2007 period where you had rising inflation and fairly strong global growth. And what worked well, uh, global real estate, commodities, emerging markets, foreign currencies, that emerging market bonds, that sort of thing. Um, what about disinflation and strong growth? Well, that's the, what the, the recent period has been uh, disinflation and growth has been low, but it is continually surprised to the upside from year to year on average. Um, the 1970s were characterized by a period of very high stag uh, and rising unexpected inflation and lower than expected growth. And so what performs well in that kind of environment? Commodities, gold, but stocks and bonds both have a very difficult time. Bonds react very unfavorably to inflation and stocks respond very unfavorably to lower than expected growth. So what, what you want is to, is to assemble a portfolio that can do well if you've got stagflationary growth, if you have inflationary growth, disinflationary growth, or God forbid, disinflationary deflation, um, like we experienced in 2008, in 2000, and in, in major bear markets, where the only things that really work are cash, long-term rates, and um, sometimes gold, right? So the risk parity portfolio, if, if, if executed properly, holds uh, investments in all of these different categories, commodities, gold, uh, global stocks, global bonds. So that's the idea of diversity, right? You want to have diversity relative to all of these different potential economic environments. The second piece of it is balance, because the challenge is that stocks fluctuate at a much higher rate um, or higher magnitude than bonds. So if you put 50% stocks and 50% bonds in a portfolio, because stocks are, are vibrating at, at this kind of rate and bonds are vibrating at this kind of rate, then you know 80 to 90% of the risk in the portfolio is gonna be stocks. So a typical 60-40 or 50-50 stock bond portfolio is really just a diluted stock portfolio. The bonds in the portfolio have almost no opportunity to express their unique personality. So if you wanna have balance between stocks and bonds, you need about 80% in bonds and 20% in stocks. And if you if just sort of expand or extrapolate this concept across all of these different global markets, then that's the global risk parity portfolio. So it's designed to be fundamentally resilient to any major economic environment and generate a relatively steady premium over time, which doesn't mean it has no volatility. It's got plenty of volatility. It does experience drawdowns. Typically, the drawdowns occur when there's an unexpected shock to expected future cash rates. So when cash becomes relatively more attractive than risky assets, then all assets fall together. And you do have some um, periods like this. 1994 was one. Uh, 2004, 2006, uh, the temper tantrum in, in 2013. There's been a few of these along the way. The recent a COVID shock when investors were just liquidating everything. You'll, you'll recall in, in late March, gold, stocks, long treasuries, everything was being dislocated because of um, just a, a lack of liquidity in markets. So there are these periods, certainly, but overall, this type of, of portfolio is designed to thrive across all these different economic regimes. Why do you think more people don't follow risk parity? I mean, you would it, it seems in theory to be pretty close to an optimal portfolio, but you know, it's not nearly as adopted in the market as it probably should be relative to how, you know, how good it is. Do you, do you think that's just a function of the fact that we've all been trained to judge everything against the S&P 500 or 60-40 portfolio or something like that, and just the fact that it, it's different and people have a hard time understanding that? 
Yeah, I think there's an extremely strong aversion to tracking your risk. Um, so and we, I mean, we know that investors in different countries vastly prefer owning the securities in those countries, right? This sort of home country bias. Um, but then, you know, what is published in the newspaper every day? You know, we see what the close of the Dow, the close of the S&P. So if, if you're substantially lagging stocks for some sufficient period of time, that's extremely painful for a lot of investors. Um, the other thing is that if, if you've got, I mean, the irony is we go talk to uh, institutional boards and institutional investment committees about the concept of risk parity. And it, what ends up happening is we get allocations to our risk parity strategy personally from people on the investment committee, but the, but the, the um, fund never actually allocates to it. We get this all the time. And I just think it's, it's hard to run it by the actuaries. It's hard to run it by the investment board. Often investment boards and increasingly over the past little while, as we've seen a big run in private equity and, and uh, in equities in general, the boards are typically stacked with, with business owners and CEOs or people that understand the business cycle and, and stocks and running companies, but they just don't understand all the fancy math and, and you know, how do you invest in commodities? And it just seems very different. And so there's a lot of career risk and complexity risk in, in the strategy and you've got the potential to maybe lag your peer group for two, three, four years uh, in a row if, if equities are on a real run. Um, how do you factor in illiquid assets? You know, there's been a, obviously a clamor um, towards private equity, private assets, private infrastructure. They don't typically mark all the time. How do you rebalance in and out of those? Rebalancing is a key facet of risk parity. So I think for all these reasons, it's just a, a high hurdle for many institutions to get over. And then to be to be honest, I just think there's so much um, misinformation about the strategy. I mean, most of the papers and, and articles that I read on it still, for some reason, dwell on the concept of it just being a stock bond portfolio with, or like a levered bond portfolio with a little bit of stocks, which totally misses the point. So I think there's misinformation that also complicates the problem. but. Um, for whatever the reason, we get lots of buy-in from the experts that run the funds and, and very little buy-in from the funds themselves. So it's an interesting conundrum. One of the, I guess, narratives or things that may play out over the next few years here is with the massive amount of stimulus that um, is being sort of pumped into the economy from all governments, really, that, you know, there could be uh, potential inflation down the road. Um, you know, you hear some people like Jeremy Siegel that make that argument, but then others say, you know, we're not going to see inflation anytime soon. So, you know, that's to be determined, but I'm wondering how, and you kind of hit on this, but in a period where there is high inflation, how does the risk parity sort of strategy handle that? And then has this been tested back through like the, the early seventies to actually show a period that, um, of high inflation and how, and how it did then? Yeah, so I mean, we've got a, a, a presentation, a webinar called 90 Years of Risk Parity. I think we go back to the early 19, uh, mid-1920s um, with with the concept. And the 1970s are a particularly good example, so thank you for, for raising that. But of course, we had um, it was a very poor decade for stocks and bonds in real terms. Uh, commodities and gold compounded at double-digit rates um, over the 1970s. And so a really good example of we're having commodities and gold in the portfolio was able to, uh, you know, pr produce pretty well normal or you know steady returns in a decade that was just awful for more traditional portfolios. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, what we don't, of course, have have long term data on is is tips, uh, so, so Treasury inflation protected securities, and not all inflationary environments will result in surging commodity prices. Um, so we may come into a period where uh, we see a major surge in wages. Wouldn't that be nice? Haven't seen that in 30 or 40 years in real terms. So if we were to see a real uh, surge in wages, that would flow very directly through to CPI. It may not also coincide with a major run in um, commodities or gold. It may or may not result in some sort of um, currency debasement. But in the event that we do see a, a major rise in wages, it flows through the CPI, we get that type of inflation, then, then tips would obviously be a great hedge against that. So the idea is you want to have all sorts of different instruments in the portfolio that defend against the different types of growth and inflation um, that you experience, and then have exposure to all of the different uh, world geographies and jurisdictions. Because you know we go through long periods where U.S. markets lag very substantially relative to to foreign markets or to emerging markets, and so you want to include all of those different markets so you can you can gain exposure to all of the world's growth opportunities. I want to ask you about Bitcoin, and not for not Bitcoin specifically, but more how you look at what assets are included in a risk parity portfolio. So obviously, you're trying to protect from every conceivable outcome you can come up with. How do you look if a new asset comes on the scene like Bitcoin? How do you look at that in terms of whether or whether or not it adds to that protection and whether or whether or not it should be included in a risk parity portfolio? Um, I mean, so so for futures investors, for example, we, we deploy our risk parity portfolios with, with futures and also ETFs. So it's a little easier with, with futures because a lot of the Bitcoin ETFs trade at a very high premium. Um, and there are very liquid uh, Bitcoin futures, but the regulators have made it much more challenging for futures managers to include Bitcoin futures in portfolios. The margin requirements and the declarations and fund documents, et cetera, really complicate the matter. Um, from a fundamental standpoint, if Bitcoin were to become sufficiently liquid, I think it probably all already is reasonably liquid. I think it probably warrants um, inclusion in a global risk parity portfolio. The great thing is because you are allocating on the basis of sort of the inverse of the risk of the market, because Bitcoin tends to have a very high volatility, it would have a, a relatively low allocation. Um, but if it were to stabilize and become, you know, a de facto global currency and behave like one with relatively low volatility, then it would earn a higher allocation over time as it, as it gained prominence. So I'm generally for it if the regulators make it a little bit more, um, a little bit less onerous and regulatorily challenging to include it in portfolios. Um, one of the last questions we want to ask before we wrap up is um, one of the arguments that we, you know, you sometimes hear against risk parity is that stocks over the long term are one of the best asset classes to own in terms of the return. So if you are an investor that can stick with equities over the long run and not get shaken out, then, you know, a risk parity strategy might not be best for that investor. Um, I mean, do you think there's any merit in that argument or? I, I think you've got to have a really strong conviction in in global equities. I mean, you know, there have absolutely been periods. I and mean, if you go back in real terms, so adjusting for inflation to 1900, 
what you observe is that a traditional 60-40 portfolio, which again is basically just an equity diluted equity portfolio, but a traditional 60-40 portfolio goes through these long 15 to 20 year periods of zero returns with high volatility and large drawdowns, followed by a 15 or 20 year period of extreme returns with very low drawdowns and low volatility, and then moves into another long period of uh, very low returns and very high drawdowns and et cetera. You go, there's about five of these cycles. If you go back to 1900, we have no reason to believe that that um, boom bust type of activity or character won't persist in the future. And so I guess one of the questions is what do investors perceive as long-term, right? I, I Certainly a lot of the behavioral data would suggest that investors think of long-term as the next three years, maybe the next five years. Um, almost no investors think in terms of 20 years or more. I mean, you could say that maybe institutions or endowments have much longer timeframes than that, but their investment committees don't, you know, that people have, have uh, career risk and they need to deliver commensurate with their peer group. And so I really don't think anybody or very, very few investors actually have a long-term investment horizon and a 15 to 20 year period of, of lower negative, high volatility, high drawdown returns would be catastrophic for most plans and, and most retirees. So I think that if you, I mean, if you were to, to scale the volatility of risk parity to the same volatility as a, as a global val, uh, balance portfolio, the risk parity portfolio dominates the global balance portfolio uh, on average, over the last nine years, and eight out of nine decades, it dominates it. So from a volatility-adjusted basis, you would prefer to be in risk parity anyways, like volatility-adjusted returns basis, you'd prefer to be in risk parity anyways, and you don't run the same risk um, of coming into a long stretch, 5, 10, 15, maybe 20-year period where the portfolio goes no nowhere, and yet you need to continue to draw distributions from it. Yeah, that, uh, that's a very good point, I think. Um, we have covered a lot today. So thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and sharing this uh, this with us. If people want to learn more about you and Resolve and um, follow you guys, where should they go? Yeah, so again, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun, as I knew it would be. Um, if people want to look a little bit further into our research and um, our company, you can find us at investresolve.com. And there's a blog, and you can also look up the Gestalt U podcast. We've got a, a Resolve Riffs podcast. And actually, we just launched another series of videos that are little short clips on um, just little segments of the longer podcast that people just want to get bite-sized um, learn a little bit something about more bite-sized topics. So um, lots of content out there to, um, to to learn about how we think about the problem. That's great. We, uh, we, we started our YouTube channels kind of around the same time. And our goal was to try to keep up with you guys in terms of number of followers. You guys are blowing us away. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, 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 we're trying to catch you, but we're, 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 uh, we're, way behind anyway i don't so. know if that's true but if if it is i don't know if you guys will be right up well, some crazy. of these guys on youtube it's like it's like these channels that have like tens of thousands of followers you're like how in the world did they get there with this type of content but i don't know it's it's a long-term compounding thing i guess you know exactly so, yeah all right adam hey listen thank you uh, very much we appreciate it thanks a lot guys have a great day thank you all right you too episode of excess returns you can follow jack on twitter at, at practical quant 
and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.